An old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host, Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll, and this week we're going to be unpacking one of the topics that I think is really on the simple side, but that has a lot of depth. And that's really what I want to do with this show as much as possible, because I think that there's value in having beginner material out there for people who are just now getting interested in the occult. They're, you know, looking for valid materials that, you know, have... Um, some academic backing, but, you know, they're also kind of interested in, you know, some of the, the basics, the simple stuff. And I, I think that there's a, a massive lack in the world, unfortunately, of high quality intro material, especially when it comes to the occult. Um, but I also don't want to do a podcast that doesn't get into the deep side of life and the deep side of, you know, the, the occult in, in general is a... Uh, it's a spirituality. It's a it's a spiritual path, and they're one of the reasons why spiritualities are important to have in your life is because of the uh, the depth that it adds to your life, to your experience. And so, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to make a podcast of a spiritual topic like this and not include the deeper side of it. And um, one of my intentions with this show is to make sure that we talk about both sides of that spectrum to offer valid, high-quality beginner material, but also to kind of improve the depth for those who have been around for a while. To always, you know, have a podcast that's both pr- produced for people who are on day one and also day one million, you know, so that it has that that full spectrum of information and. Um, Man, the, the, the Elements is a perfect topic to do that kind of a thing because there is a lot of more in-depth material, but it is one of those fantastic starting points that a lot of magical traditions will focus on right off the bat. And so I'm really excited for this topic. I think that it has the potential to accomplish that goal. So to start off, what are the Elements? And what do I mean by... It shows up in a lot of different stuff. Um, so the elements generally are quartered. There's four elements. And in most traditions, most perceptions of those four elements, there's kind of a fifth one. And the fifth one is uh, kind of made up of all of the others, if that makes sense. The transition of, um, or the prima mata, the, the, uh, the source of all of the other ones. And so the elements as they are usually quartered out is earth, air, fire, and water. Now, there's a lot of different uh, religions and philosophies and a lot of different historical groups who have considered earth, air, fire, and water to be um, in some way material for making up an experience. 
And we're going to kind of dive into the specifics of that. But that's that's kind of what, when we're talking about earth, air, fire, and water, and then in the fifth case, it would be spirit, right? And that's what joins all of them together. Um, the area in between, if, if you will, right? So where does that come from? Uh, and what traditions use it? Well, a really, really common tradition that I hear constantly and that are very focused on it is Wicca. Wiccans... Uh, where the symbol of the pentagram around their neck. And the symbol of the pentagram is, it's a five-pointed star, the four points of the elements, and the fifth point of spirit. Um, it's a, generally a symbol of their faith, as well as a reminder of the elements, as well as a protective symbol. That's the idea of that symbol, right? But I would say that if we start the conversation with the Wiccans do it, that we're missing a large portion of history and cultures that either honor the elements directly or have their own interpretations of the elements or have written at some point in their history about the elements. And so I want to make sure that we expand it beyond just a conversation about the occult and we include some of those other traditions and show how the elements themselves is a system of symbols that goes back much farther uh, than any tradition uh, that we modernly practice. And we can definitely see that because of its influence in so many different cultures that exist historically. So, uh, for example, a similar system of the four elements is used in classical Greece, uh, ancient Tibet, India, and even Judaism. So many, many cultures that we would consider to be far away from each other both in time and geography, have used similar breakdowns of the elements. And that is an interesting thing that only happens sometimes. It's uh, The more that you get into the occult, the more that you'll find yourself studying a bunch of different religions and finding you know, some similarities between them and a whole bunch of differences between them. And it's not very often that you find a set of symbols that is that profoundly included in everything. Um... And that, that's not to say that that's an exhaustive list. You know, that's just kind of an example of just how widespread we're talking about. Generally speaking, the elements are considered to be uh, symbols of the microcosm as opposed to symbols of the macrocosm. And that's not to say that they're not in the macrocosm, but that we use different sets of symbols for interpreting the macrocosm as opposed to the microcosm. And so what I mean by that is microcosm means like uh, so that which is small and macrocosm means that which is large so microcosm would mean the world within and macrocosm would mean the the celestial realm that is you know influencing the world that you're it's it's the system above the system that you're in if that makes sense um, that which influences it so generally speaking the symbols of the elements are considered to be um, microcosmic to be interpretations of the internal space. Now, that's not to say every tradition treats them as microcosmic. Um, it is most definitely, there are most definitely traditions that treat them as symbols of anything. And they're kind of, it's, it's difficult when you're talking about a symbol, and we'll kind of dive into the specifics of that, but it's difficult when you're talking about a symbol to really like define what it is, right? Uh, for the alchemists, uh, in the, what is that, the 15th and 16th century, 
The alchemists believed that these were the literal building blocks of reality. That um, that if you took like some uh, earth, like some physical stone, you know, and you took some physical air and you mixed them together, you would get something, right? And they believed that there was like a balance between these four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, that resulted in the so uh, the chemical production, almost almost chemical. The al alchemy became chemistry as we refined with the scientific method, but originally it was alchemy. It was more. It was chemistry of a spiritual nature. It was the belief that um, that they could use alchemy in order to have certain effects because God had created the universe using, you know, chemical laws. And so in practicing alchemy, they eventually found um, the scientific method to be of benefit for interpreting the world around them. But before, before chemistry became scientific, it was alchemy. Um, so at that time, they, they literally believed the elements to be the literal building blocks of the universe, the same way that we might consider atoms to be today. Uh, or if you're into more um, some of the deeper ends of physics, you might even consider like things like string theory and the Higgs boson and you know the way that certain energy patterns and vibrations might be the building blocks of reality. Uh, that's how they treated the elements. And... An example of that would be they had uh, like swamp bugs or frogs, perfect examples of this. There was medieval belief that um, that like swamp bugs, for example, were like a mix of earth and water. And it's it makes kind of sense. You know, if, if you sat on the, the, the bank of a of a lake for a period of time, let's say you sat there for a whole year, you know, because you're. Uh, you've set up your village near a, a body of water, and every day you, you know, in doing your daily dealings, you are exposed to whatever's going on in that lake, whether you're actively observing it or not. And eventually, you notice that the lake goes through certain kinds of phases. And one of the phases is that, um, in in fly fishing, we call it matching the hatch. I, I really enjoy fly fishing, but matching the hatch means there's specific cycles throughout a bug's life where they go through different phases. You might have just the egg stage or the larva stage or, you know, and they go through each one of these individual phases. And one of the things that happens with aquatic bugs is they breed and lay their eggs under the water surface. And then they go through the larva stage under the water surface. And then one day they float to the top of the water. They burst out of their own body, almost like a cocoon, and a flighted bug releases itself from that from that cocoon stage or from that larva stage right they grow wings and then shed their old body in the old and you know arise up out of the water and if you're an ancient civilization and you don't you didn't you know biologically isolate this one particular bug and breed it and watch the type of egg that it lays and take that egg and give it the proper conditions in order for it to hatch and find that particular larva and observe that larva throughout its entire life and its growth pattern as it goes through multiple stages like a nymph and a, a larva and you know some other stages of a bug's life and eventually you observe it you know coming out of that stage and turning into this flighted bug and now you have witnessed the entire circle of life for this animal if you haven't done that which 
you know, in ancient times. Most of them had not. It sure appears as if bugs just crawl out of the lake. Like, there's water and earth, and all of a sudden, one day, every day in spring of, you know, this particular month, just bugs come up out of the earth, and nothing went in there, you know? So it sure seems like bugs are manifesting out of this mix of water and earth. Same with frogs, right? If you go skim the whole pond at a specific time of year, there's no frogs in there. I mean, I'm sure you would probably catch some, the parents of the last generation, right? But, you know, there's not there's not a bunch of frogs in there. And then there's suddenly a whole bunch of tadpole things. And then one day there's a bunch of frogs in the damn lake, you know? So it sure appears to them that there's this mix of, you know, whether that's earth and water or whether that's uh, like logs, like wood and like fire. There's these reactions between these things creating life, creating um, chemical reactions. If you've ever like thrown one type of thing into another thing and seen some kind of physical reaction that's observable by them, by mankind. And so um, alchemists believed the elements to be literal, to be actual physical representations of the world around them. Now, not to say that alchemy doesn't also have its spiritual side, where these things are symbols of another thing. Um, and when it's in its spiritual realm is definitely when we start talking about these symbols, the way that they're you know, modernly used, to understand parts of psychology, to understand parts of different energies that we work with. Um, but in this time period, they would have believed it literally. Another example of the four elements being, you know, represented physically in reality in old beliefs is, uh, Hippocrates. Hippocrates was the birth of medicine. Just like alchemy was the birth of chemistry, Hippocrates is the Greek man legend. I'm, I, as far as I understand, we do know that he was a real person, but he has definitely been uh, given the Greek treatment of, you know, being made greater than he was. Um, so Hippocrates is the birth of medicine. And at the time, he believed in a concept called the four humors. Humors being the things that were making you sick. And there was this concept of the yellow bile, the black bile, blood, and phlegm. And that a misbalance of these things is what was causing all forms of sickness in the world. And at this time, they hadn't yet proven the existence of germs and biology or molds and microbiologies and things that you know, can make you sick and viruses. The idea of you know, genetic strings that don't actually have life that are that are replicating by using another organism. Viruses that they didn't even consider yet for quite some time. <laughs> there was this belief that there's, you know, bad air and those kind of things. And the four humors, uh, yellow bile related to fire and uh, black bile related to earth. And the blood was believed to have air-like properties and phlegm was believed to have water-like properties. And there were these four humors were ways of identifying misbalances and, and then um, by introducing more balance into the individual, they believed that they were, you know, healing them. Uh, Hippocrates' work goes far beyond this. He, he most definitely was uh, actually treating people and, and at some point was using herbal traditions and draining of, you know, certain disease from the body and while it was very primitive, because obviously this is the starting point of this kind of thing, 
before him, the Greek belief and the belief in most of the world was that if you got sick, it's because the gods were mad and they're killing you. And Hippocrates said, no, we can fight this. This is, these are naturally caused things. And if we understand them, we can, we can win. And they didn't have the science to back up exactly how, so it definitely wasn't, uh, you know, the best situation that we have. It wasn't a situation as good as we have today, but it was definitely some form of medical treatment. Um, Aristotle is another fantastic example of that same similar time period, not the same time period, but a similar time period, uh, same culture, that uh, in his book on, on coming to be and passing away, he mentions the four elements. He mentions fire, air, water, and earth. And his definition of them uh, we use um, to kind of understand a little bit more. Uh, Aristotle talked about fire being hot and dry. Everything is a mix of hot and cold or wet and dry in Aristotle's belief. And so uh, fire is hot and dry. Air is hot and wet. Think of like water vapor or steam. I'm sure that his belief of air being hot and wet was started by boiling water and seeing it turn into this, you know, this gaseous form and sticking your hand in it and it's hot and wet and sticking your hand over the fire that's boiling it and it's hot and dry. And I'm sure that's where some of that inspiration came from. Uh, water is cold and wet and uh, earth is cold and dry. I would argue that earth, if you stick your hand in dirt, that it's not dry, but it's sure as hell dry in comparison to water. <laughs> so I guess it also depends on where you're getting the earth. In Greece, it's a hotter, more arid climate than where I live. So I suppose it's not quite the same. That's probably a factor. But um, Aristotle's belief split them into those types of categories. To look at a completely different culture, the uh, Indian culture had what was called the tattvas. Tattvas are, and I, I shouldn't say had, I had applies to uh, the ancient Greeks because there are not ancient Greeks anymore. While some people have revitalized their beliefs and religion, um, the, the tattvas is a, a, still a topic of discussion in Indian culture. Um, so they still... Uh, some individuals still to this day practice beliefs around the tattvas. Tattvas are um, prithvi, apas, tejas, or akasa. Oh, and, and vayu. And um, that's your five elements, right? So prithvi is earth, apas is water, tejas is fire, or tejas. I'm not sure how they pronounce their J. Vayu is water, and akasa, which is where we get the word akashic is void spirit aether it's that concept of like the space right um so one thing that's very interesting about the tatvas is is that their system is also just like the european side and just like the greek side uh their their system is in fact uh microcosmic there is uh the grosser and the more fine of energies and the tatvas represents kind of that more um, the lower level of, of spiritual energies. And then once those are in balance, one can start to mess with some of these higher energies. And that's definitely one of the ways that uh, elemental magic is treated today. Um, another example of some of those Eastern cultures would be uh, Buddhism. Buddhism has four elements. Um, 
the four elements in Buddha briefly spoke about them. There's not a whole bunch of information about it, but Buddha did bring up the four elements of solidity, fluidity, temperature, and mobility. And uh, solidity obviously is earth, right? Fluidity, um, mobility is, is like movement. That would be like air. Fluidity is more like, like a liquid fluid, which is uh, like water and temperature being fire, heat. And so very, very similar, while it, unique in its own right, it has its own, you know, set. It's not quite as straightforward as the way that uh, alchemy uses earth, air, fire, and water and calls them earth, air, and fire, and water. Aristotle called them fire, air, water, and earth. The tattvas are literally earth, water, fire, and air. Um, I have them mislabeled here. I do. Prithvi is earth. Uh... I believe Vaya is water. I have two of them labeled as water. Tejas is fire. I wonder if when I was reading them, if I missed that. Um, but either Apas or Vayu is actually supposed to be air. I don't remember off the top of my head. I think I actually have it written down later, though. Vayu is air. That's, that's what that is. Okay. Vayu is air. Let me make a note of that here. So my notes reflect the actuality when we create the show notes. Um... So, so Buddhism is not quite as literally here are the four. They are labeled earth, air, fire, and water. But they definitely have solidity being a, a very earthy thing, right? S solid form. Fluidity being like a liquid form. Temperature being heat. And mobility being like wind almost, you know? Um, very similar. Uh, Judaism also has its examples. Judaism, for example, um, my... I'm going to butcher this man's name. <coughs> His name is Maimonides. Maimonides. Uh, in the 10th century, he wrote about... Um, he, he's, he's a Jewish, Jewish rab, rabbi? Jewish, Jewish writer? Religious writer for Judaism. Um, he, he wrote about them in the 10th century, um, writing that there are four... This is a direct quote. There are four bodies... And they are fire, air, water, and earth. They're translated next to that. So it says there are four bodies, Kufim. And they are fire, Aesh, air, Ruach, water, Mayam, and earth, Afar. They are the foundation of all that is created beneath the firmament, all that comes from human or beast or bird or creeping thing or fish or plant or metal or precious stone or pearls or other building stones or mountains or the substance of the earth, the form, Golem, of all things is composed of these four foundations. They do not travel through knowledge or will, but rather according to the plan uh, that has been set for them. And so, as an example of someone in the 10th century that is uh, probably very exposed to European culture at that point, but not being a member of the 10th century Christianity, um, being still a member of Judaism in the 10th century, being um, influenced by the ideas of earth, air, fire, and water, and that being written into their works. Some other Jewish examples would be the Sefer Yetzirah. Sefer Yetzirah is where it's the text that a lot of the Kabbalistic uh, associations that get used in Kabbalah come from. And the Sefer Yetzirah is, uh, there is a fantastic copy of it um, in Samuel Mather's work. It was translated by him uh, in a book called the Kambala Unveiled, 
where the Sephirot's era was translated by Mathers into English. So if, um, if you don't speak Hebrew and you do speak English and you wanted to uh, take a look at the Sephirot's era, that's a fantastic source that's very in line with the occult tradition in general. Um, Mathers was the one of the two founding members of the uh, Golden Dawn. So very influential individual in the occult world. Um, another Jewish source is that it shows up in the Zohar. So the Zohar, being one of the religious books, um, does discuss earth, air, fire, and water. And I wouldn't necessarily say, I mean, this obviously isn't intended to be an exhaustive list. I don't think we could do it. The point is to kind of demonstrate, look how many cultures have a set of four symbols that are supposed to be some types of energies, some types of symbol to work with. And every single one of them has earth, air, fire, and water as the four. It's a very interesting thing. Um, but it doesn't just show up in religion. It shows up in other aspects, too, in more mundane ways. And the example I always like to really point out to people is the U.S. military. So I live in the United States. And so my experience with the military is, is to know my own military. I'm I'm reasonably sure that many other organizations are set up very, very similarly to this, but I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm going to use the mil my own military as an example. We have the Army, the Marines, the Navy, and the Air Force. And then there is actually a fifth branch of armed forces. It's run by a different organization. So those, uh, those four are done by the Department of Defense, and we have a fifth one that is done by the Department of Homeland Security, which is the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard's job is to uh, enforce maritime law, uh, meaning like along the coast, um, which is in an effect a dis defensive measure that controls what's coming in and out of our country that protects more of the individuals themselves. I think this is really funny because we have earth, air, fire, and water, and then also spirit, you know, being the defense of the, uh, the individuals, the land itself, the actual country, being the five branches of our military, right? And it, it's interesting because we didn't make our military in an attempt to try to be more earth, air, fire, and watery. That wasn't the goal. But we looked out at the universe and we said, well, what's the best way to create a military? Well, we're going to probably need some kind of a you know, some kind of a ground force. We're going to need some some kind of like people to go and work on the ground to, you know, control the ground in those cases. The army would be a pretty good way to do that, you know, and we're going to need, you know, so that's, that's our earth element army. And then uh, we're going to need somebody that's capable of, you know, controlling like the water, like the ocean. And so we'll need like a navy. And and then, uh, well, well, we'll need some kind of air support and some kind of, uh, supremacy in the air. We're going to have to have some form of, you know, control of airspace. Uh, and so we're going to need like an air force. We even call it the air force. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably need uh, some kind of force of just gung-ho fiery souls to just go and, you know, attack when we, when we need something to, to attack and to, lift when we need something to be lifted and to, you know, and that's just the, that fiery nature of just going out and getting it done, you know, and that's, that's the Marines. And so it is very interesting how our, our, the problem was not, how do we make a military that reflects the elements? The problem was, let's look at the universe around us, divide this up into some reasonable 
subcategories and try to create some kind of an organization to act in those ways. And what we came up with was accidentally the four elements. I would argue that a very similar thing happened with the alchemists. The alchemists went out in the world around them trying to find symbols and processes and trying to understand the world around them and the spiritual nature of it and divided the world and their experiences up into, you know, four major categories. And those four categories were earth, air, fire, and water. And then they went on from there. Um, that's one of the most interesting things about these types of symbols is that you can see them out there in your regular life and the universe is kind of oriented around them. Now, you can take that um, in a very secular way and you can say that these things are four subcategories that we use to divide up our experience and that they represent either processes in the psychology and so our mind automatically associates things into those four categories or you could say that, um, for example, and we'll talk a little bit about um, the division of these elements um, into the male, the masculine and feminine, like a, a male-female aspect where fire and air are associated with more masculine energies and water and earth are f associated with more feminine energies. Um, the, the human brain is uh, has two major lobes to it and those two lobes do very different things and one of the ways that that affects your psychology is that your brain is naturally going to divide things up into categories of two and it's a little bit harder it's not to say that you can't but it is a little bit harder to find sections of threes uh, for that reason and when we do subdivide things into threes we find that usually we have one that's one end of a polarity, one that's another end of a polarity, and then a mix of those two things being the third thing that we identify. And so deep in human psychology, there's this concept of duality. Now, whether that's uh, just because it was evolutionarily valuable uh, or whether it's that, um, that that is the nature of reality is, is difficult to say. It's possible that our brain just naturally acquires dualities. And if you had duality thinking, it would be really easy to get to a quadrant of four because you would take one duality and divide them into male and feminine. You'd take another duality and divide them into mutable and, um, what is it, mutable and... Basically, you'd divide them into the, the flexible one and the, the more rigid one, right? And so then you'd have a male rigid and, and a male fluid and a female rigid and a female fluid. So... You can see how very quickly you'd end up with things that are divided. And Aristotle's thinking goes directly along this kind of a line where fire is hot and dry and air is hot and wet. And he's like divided them up in, into dualities, right? Um, so it might be something that's very secular. We're not really sure, right? Uh, it could also be that the actual structure of the universe and the spiritual nature of the universe is uh, divided up into some specific energies and there are going to be people that come from especially in the occult world you're going to you're going to run into people who believe many different things and uh i would say that all of those things are valid and if nothing else the elements offer us an opportunity at a thought experiment that can be personally valuable and so if nothing else i would suggest to at least look at it from that aspect if not looking at it into 
how interesting it is that the universe can be divided into these four categories, right? So that's what kind of the history, the formation of these things are. Let's look at the actual elements themselves. Let's actually unpack them. What are the elements themselves? What is fire? What is air? What is water, right? What can you do with them? And uh, what, when, when we... I feel it's really necessary, especially this being one of the earlier episodes where we talk about symbols to kind of talk about the nature of describing symbols. When we're describing symbols, we're describing something that is abstract and and is an overarching category for many, many, many things. And so I would encourage people to not stop at whatever my list is and to not stop at the first word in the list that makes sense to them. But to build up a symbol in as wide of a category as possible while still being true to the things that fall into this category. Because we are talking about some abstract thing out there, you can't just put a single word on top of an abstract thing and explain it, expect it to describe the entire abstract thing. You have to put uh, a whole bunch of words that describe a whole bunch of things that this abstract category kind of, you know, covers. And you'll eventually start to have a bigger picture of what that abstract symbol is that we're dealing with. And um, so try to look at the whole list at once. And that should help to get kind of a peek at what we're talking about. Understand that language is limited. Human language is limited in the fact that we're usually identifying a single object with a single word a single concept with a single word, but when we're talking about elemental energies, we are not. So I might say things like, fire is the color red, but I'm not saying fire is the color red, I'm saying fire is the color red and it is also these other things, and if you think about them all at the same time, you have this larger perspective of all of these things meshed together. Oh, they are all similar. I can see what fire energy is now, if that kind of makes sense. Thinking big picture instead of small picture and specifics. So those who think abstractly are going to succeed a little bit more at this. Not to say that everyone can't understand. So uh, fire. Fire is generally considered to be that which consumes. Earth is considered to be that which provides. Air is considered to be that which divides. And water is considered to be that which joins together. Okay, Let's kind of try to unpack that a little bit more. Fire is a whole bunch of stuff. It's that warm feeling. Uh, it's passion. You know, the way that passion inflames the soul. We even say things in our language like it inflames the soul. It's sex. Uh, sex is going to be a category that's in many of these elements. <laughs> and then also some other stuff too. Because human sexuality is very complicated. Um, it's a specific type of sex, right? Um, there's like definitely something to be said about the difference between like a loving, um, caring, taking care of someone's sex versus a passionate ripping off of the clothes and the hot steamy shower scene kind of sex versus, uh, maybe like a monetarily valued sex, like where, you know, um, it's more like pragmatic, you know, for people to. Uh, or like arranged marriages, for example, where they like, you know, the partner is not 
someone that they have you know specifically selected but instead someone who has been selected for marriage with that individual and the intent is for their empires and their you know their their finances to be joined and their families to be joined and uh you know for them to breed so there's like different reasons you might have sex and each one of those is going to kind of fall into a different elemental category in this case when i say sex i'm talking about that like passionate sweat dripping down your back like you just make a gif of it and post it on a fucking dirty website type of just it, you know that carnal passion that consumes the individual we're talking about that we're also talking about things like strength you know things uh that are very high energy you know cardio is a great example um these the fire energies get associated with like the energies of the south because uh most of these traditions were formulated around um, around Europe and other areas that are north of the equator. And so if you turn to the south, all the hot weather and the hot air seems to come from the south. So there's like there's like pragmatic reasons why things would come from that direction. Um, it would be associated with like this, the summer heat, you know, like the, the, the hottest day of the year and the way that it's just like, it's so hot and baking you outside. And, and think about that feeling of walking outside and it's hot and dry. And, you know, it's that, that part of the summer where it's not really fun to be outside anymore. You know, um, fire is also instinctual and forceful. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's a symbol of all those kinds of things, all kind of wrapped together in one. It's it's the things that that consume the individual. Um, so it's it's the warm feeling colors like red and orange, and it's the uh, yeah. I think I've drawn a pretty good picture of what fire is. So in contrast, that's what fire is. Now let's look at earth. Right, earth is that which provides. You know. Plants come from the earth. Uh, money is an earth element thing. You know, soil is an earth element concept. Forest growth, the way that like the woods all pop up out of the earth and how those, you know, trees build our homes and the plants provide us food and the, the you know, there's, there's something to be said about all of that. Um, I would argue that like hunting is more fire. You know, you're like, you're like out on the hunt. I'm going to catch the thing, you know, whereas like gathering is more earth. You know, here's this abundance that's being provided out of the out of the growth that exists in nature. So that might be an example. Um, stone. Stone would be an earth element concept. Um, when we're talking about earth colors, we're talking about uh, like grays and browns and greens and also like um, in contrast like fires red orange yellows you know those exciting colors those the colors of heat you know earth is more about you know the grays and the browns and the stones and the you know um, there's also the colors of like Malkuth being this um, sephirotic symbol of you know the earth the kingdom uh, it has its own color associations, and those four color associations are often used for earth, which is citrine, russet, black, and olive. But generally, when you're first getting started, earth, think green, think brown, think black. Those are kind of, you know, the, the traditional ones that you're going to see a whole bunch. Um, the earth is also things like crops, 
and society is a pretty good example you know society is that which provides to you and um buildings you know like uh the way that like like a building is like a physical object that provides home to you you know that sense of security and protection those are earth element things um generosity businesses laborious endeavors those are going to be earth element things on the on the negative side you know all these elements have positive sides but something to mention with like the negative side of earth is like greed where like you're starting to become very very interested and obsessed with uh, like physical objects and now you're starting to like collect up the physical objects and hoard them for yourselves and that's like you know, that's earth element gone awry when someone starts to become greedy is because they're they're running out trying to collect up all of the, you know, all of the objects. It's object-oriented. Whereas, like, fire, uh, if you were, like, uh, struggling with fire, you'd probably find yourself struggling with things that just consume you and you, like, lose control to them. Like, like anger or maybe, like a like, a sexual addiction or, like, porn, you know, like, things that could be you know, um, that, that can get out of hand. Earth is greed, you know, they're, they're different forms of misbalance when they get out of control, if that makes sense. Um, earth element is also going to be associated with things like squares as opposed to triangles. Fire is often triangular or made up of little triangles. Uh, whereas, earth is generally considered to be like a foundation like when you lay the foundation to a house you draw a big square on the ground or you know whatever the shape of the building is but it's usually rectangular right so it gets associated with uh with squares and uh the earth also has four different divisions in it um it's generally considered to be of import it's also going to be things like fertility you know just like um just like when you like plant a seed in the ground and it becomes a plant and that's, you know, like uh, an earth element thing. Same kind of concept when you like plant a seed in a woman and, uh, you know, her womb turns it into like a, uh, a, a child and the child comes out. That's also an example of fertility. And so like uh, earth element gets tied into those kind of things as well. Um, abundance and uh, earth thinking is to be practical. It's to think about the specific and the practical. So like where fire thinking is to act on instinct and passion and to just be motivated to try something that's impossible because we're going to do it, man. It's going to be awesome. We're just going to earth element is like, now hang on, let's be practical about this. It's going to cost $15 for us to go walk in there. And it's also going to cost us the $3 that it takes to run the gas tank in order to get there, to drive there. When we get there, we're probably going to be hungry. So we need to also kind of try to budget for this other thing. And, you know, it's also going to take up these hours. Do we practically have the ability to take these hours out of our day and apply it into it? So that's like the difference between fire thinking and earth thinking. Earth thinking is much more practical. So, all right. So air element air element in contrast to those air is that which divides so fire was that which consumes earth is that which provides air is that which divides dividing not necessarily in the way of like saying hey let's cut this family in half and now 
you are, I don't know, one political opinion, you're the other political opinion, go ahead and fight and hate each other. It's definitely not that. But it is that which divides in a conceptual meaning. So air element things are things that are intellectual and scientific and mathematic, right? It's things that are like subcategorizing. When, when, when air element goes out into the world, it uh, subdivides them into categories. So it might say, hey, there's trees in the forest. Well, you're right, there are trees in the forest. Some of them are deciduous trees and some of them are coniferous trees. And we can subdivide those into two different categories. And the deciduous trees, there's like 15 different types of trees that we've noticed. And, you know, these ones seem to be related to each other. And these other ones have bigger leaves. And these other ones have smaller leaves. And let's subdivide those up. And we know that from genetic testing, we can, we can say that these two are definitely related to each other much more recently than these other two. And so let's subdivide those out. Air is that which is categorizing and, and dividing things out into categories. So it's going to be intellectual in nature. It's going to be scientific. It's going to be mathematics. Um, it's going to be things like your attention. Your attention divides because there's your whole experience. There's the whole world around you. And then there's whatever you're paying attention to, right? And now suddenly that whole world around you isn't quite as important as the thing you're staring at. So attention is air element. It's usually associated with the color yellow, um, it can also be associated with some other color, like white, those kind of things. Uh, it's driven by, like, ideas. Air element is going to be very... Um, it's about in ingenuity. It's about wit. It's about puzzles, right? Um, air element is, uh, like, where fire is instinctual, air is intuition. It's like, well, I know from previous experiences that this is the case. And so we could probably predict intuitively that this will be the case in this other situation, right? Um, yeah, I, I feel like that's intuition as opposed to instinct is, is kind of an, an important dividing line there. Air is always changing. Think about the way that like the wind is blowing in your face, but you know, it's blowing on your face in little uh, puffs. And so one might hit your face this way and one might hit your face that way. And, and every time the wind blows, it's going to react just a little bit differently because of the flow of the air. Um, air element is also very conceptual. You know, it's all about the mind. Where fire is about the soul and earth is about physical objects, the air is about the mind. Right? Does that make sense? Now, the best way to describe what air is is to explain its opposite because they're both positive. They're both, you know, things that you probably want some balance in in your life. However, uh, they're very, very drastically different from each other. And so to best describe water is to also best describe air. And to best describe air is also to best describe water. Water is that opposite. Instead of air being that which divides, water is that which joins together. It's, it's taking large categories of things and bringing them back into one single category. For example, uh, music. Music is a perfect example of water. It's, it's amazing the way that each one of us will divide ourselves out into individuals. But you play a, mus you play a song and it doesn't even matter if you know the lyrics. 
It doesn't matter if you speak the language that it was written in. There's something about music that brings people together into one single solid community, right? Water is also things like emotion, where air is intellectuality. You know, it's important to think. It's also important to feel, you know? And they're kind of on flip sides because making an intellectual decision might include, uh, well, what's what gives the best output? Well, the most output is to do this, but that's insensitive. It's insensitive to do that as the best output. We should consider the emotional side of this. Uh, how, what does it feel like to be the person that gets cut out of this of this thing or treated in this way or whatever? Oh, okay, you're right. We should add some emotional thinking into our decision-making process. So emotion is, is water. It joins people together. It brings them back into one category. Um, dreams are very water-based. Uh, dreams are liquidy in their nature. The way that... Um, and if you want more information about this, there's episodes on lucid dreaming that go in very heavily in-depth. But the more I have experimented with lucid dreaming, the more I have realized that they are very liquidy in the way that this reality, this place, a waking life, is so solid. It's made of earth element. Um, if I set a salt shaker down, I turn around... I walk away, I come back six months later, the salt shaker will be there because it's a physical object. But in dreams, if I set a salt shaker down and I turn around and I know that the salt shaker was sitting next to, I don't know, a cup, I turn back around and now I'm going to have a cup of salt water because the two ideas flow together and like join, right? So um, the same way that like if you dropped an uh, like a drop of dye into a, a bucket of water and slowly that dye drop would like move and consume the whole and now suddenly all of the water is I don't know let's say it's a let's say it's a drop of blue food coloring now the whole of water is blue after a while you know the way that it flows together what if you take a red drop over here and a blue drop over there and eventually it mixes together and becomes a purple bucket of water, right? That's water element, right? And that's how dreams operate. The things in a dream flow into each other and become one combination of the two parts, especially if you're not paying attention to them. <laughs> uh, so that's why I put uh, dreams into the water category. Um, I one of the One of the points that I put here in my list of water was the song of the heart. So if um, if air is everything that has to do for the mind, water is exactly that, but for the heart. So the way that like emotions and feelings and anxiety, like the, how I feel about my place in the world and how I feel about, you know, not, not logic-based thinking, not, oh, okay, well, I know mathematically the best way to do something is this. But emotionally, what, is it, what does it feel like to wake up two hours early and to go to bed two hours late and to, you know, to find myself in situations that I'm uncomfortable with? And how can I take care of my heart? You know? How can I express my heart? So expression becomes really important with water element. It also becomes things like art. There's, there's not a lot of really good art that exists from uh, extremely air element perspectives. Most really good art is created from water perspective. It's created from that concept of like, you know, uh, the emotional 
state of the person. It kind of bridges that, that gap of language and culture and those kind of things. Um, so it's also going to include things like emotional creativity. You know, uh, love is a perfect example of a water element thing. So back to that concept that we're talking about with fire element, with sex being, you know, fire element. Sex is also water element though too, you know. Sex can also be done because of like love and affection, compassion. And uh, that's where you're going to see like more water element stuff. Um, which by no means is the only reason to fuck. <laughs> uh, I think that every single one of those categories, fire, air, earth, and water, could you know, potentially see some version of sex represented. Because human sexuality is a very complex thing. Um, water element, when you're talking about colors, is going to be like the blues, you know, the, the, the deep greens, you know, teal, the color of water. But think about the way that water makes you feel, you know. Think about the way that those colors make you feel. They're, they're mysterious. They're cool. They're, you know, uh, that whole aspect to it. The ocean, you know. It's, it's uh, that feeling is, is water element. So think about the way that the colors kind of break down and how... Um, Red and orange excite you. That's fire. And green and, you know, browns are kind of like, you know, grays are kind of like grounding, you know. That's earth. And uh, yellows and, like, those electric colors are, you know, they're, like, intellectually exciting. And blues and those deep greens and those teals are, like, you know, some... I don't know, they're almost like an emotional feeling. And so when we talk about like dividing up a human being into the four categories of fire, earth, air, and water, we would say things like, oh, you know, fire is his soul and his passions and his, and if you're talking about earth, you're saying his finances and his his home, his, what kind of car does he drive? What are the physical objects in his life, right? And if you're talking about air, you're saying, well, look at who the individual is intellectually. You know, he has his master's degree. He's gone through severe education. He... Uh, thinks about his life and, and um, spends a lot of time finding like the the mathematical way to to go about doing a thing. And then when you're talking about the water element of someone, you're you're talking about their emotional strength. Their uh, you know are they emotionally stable? You know are they able to create art? Are they able to convey um, to others how they're feeling? You know people that are really stuck in a different element than water might find it's difficult to tell someone when they're you know, I'm not feeling like this is right for me, or, you know, I feel really empowered to do, they won't use the words I feel very much, um, you know, have as much compassion for those around them, those kind of things. So like a person, a human being is a complex balance of those four elements, right? And this can kind of be said about anything. You can go out and find any object or just the world itself, and you can divide it up into these categories and kind of see how it plays out, right? Um, for example, there's like a, there are certain, if you take a group of people, there are certain fire types, even though that individual is made up of earth, air, fire, and water, you could zoom out a little bit and look at an, a group of people and say, you know, I don't know, Dave's personality is very fire-esque. Have you ever noticed that? He's a fiery soul. They even call it fiery, you know, he's, you know, he's passionate and he's, he's high energy and he's always trying to get something started and instinctually just drive in there and 
maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the group needs somebody to be instinctual and just be ready to just forcefully run in and get something done. But maybe it's destructive. Maybe he doesn't think about the practical side of things. And maybe that practical side is the more... I don't know. Let's let's say the practical side of like the money side of it. He doesn't think about what that cost the group for him to do that and how we didn't have the physical means to do that. Maybe we need to bring in somebody to work with him that's you know a little more earth element of a personality type. One of those people that's always you know crunching that specific. Or maybe maybe that instinct can be you know um, cold by uh, some air elemental type of personality being introduced into the situation where you know that person might you know oh yeah that's a great idea we should go do that how are we going to do that and then the fire element has to stop and go how that's a that's a consideration i hadn't thought of how do we do it i was just going to do it because there's a thing to do you know uh and and maybe throughout all of this interaction with these members of this group people's you know, ideas and feelings and those kind of things are getting stepped on and you need a water element type of personality to kind of come in and, you know, maybe Janet comes in and says, Hey, you know, like, did, did you, did you realize Dave that when you spoke to Steve, that you were being aggressive and I think you hurt his feelings. I think that's why he stormed away. I don't think it has anything about him not wanting to do this thing that you want to do. I think that you were just rude to him, you know? And so, uh, different personality types could fall into the earth, air, fire, and water concepts. Uh, different aspects of an individual, different aspects of really anything. You know, you could look at like a bookshelf and you could say like, all right, well, there's some books on this topic and there's some books on that topic and there's some books on... And what are those topics, you know? Does that fall more into fire or air or earth or water? The writing style, the language that's used and, you know, water writing is probably going to be more poetic it's going to be more you know down that road like poetry whereas like uh fire writing might involve i don't know you know those i hope that other people's grandmas did this but my grandma was always reading these uh man i don't know what to call them those romance novels <laughs> i don't want to like i i don't i never read one of them but i just always assumed that she was reading something that was kind of dirty um you know those romance novels with shirtless Javier on the on the cover over there, sitting on a sunrise boat. You know those kind of things. Um, that would be like probably a little bit more of like a fiery writing, whereas like like a more of like poetry might be considered more watery. And you know maybe like a like a an air element book would be something that's like like if you go to college and you get those textbooks, and it's like here is the definition of this word and that's different from this other word and see what I'm saying? Whereas like earth element might be like a book about, I don't know, your finances might be like, Hey, I'm trying to like learn how money works or those kind of things. So you can kind of see how just about anything can be kind of divided into these different categories. And then when we're talking about fire, we're talking about the symbol. It is fire. We are not talking about, physical fire hey look i lit it on fire that's not what we're talking about we're talking about these kind of symbols we're talking about these large categories of information and uh the ways that those categories of information interact with other categories in similar fashions so f air and water air thinking is going to interact with water thinking 
in certain ways. Air problems are going to interact with water problems in certain ways, if that makes sense. There's uh, the interactions between these elements is often predictable. <laughs> it's very often predictable. So we talked about the general symbols that are them. What about the actual physical symbols when you write, when you draw them on a piece of paper? There's a lot of different symbols for the elements. One we've already talked about, the pentagram. You know, that's all four symbols. That's uh, and the fifth being spirit, that which that which joins all of these things together, um, is spirit. So, um, a pentagram is a star drawn with one continuous line, and it has a circle around it. That's what a pentagram is. Um, you could draw without the the. Uh, I'm sorry, a pentacle has the circle around it. A pentagram is just the star. Both of those are symbols of the elements. The major difference being the pentacle is generally a symbol of Wicca, um, whereas the pentagram is generally a symbol of the elements themselves. The pentagram is in the pentacle. The pentacle includes the four elements and also a protective circle around the outside. Right? Um, so the pentagram, uh, the top point of the star, so if you have a regular star and you point one towards the top and four out in the other directions, then you get the top one is associated with spirit. The top left is associated with air. The top right is associated with water. The bottom left is associated with earth. And the bottom right is associated with fire. You'll often see people uh, line up their, um, their altars in this way, where they will uh, put their air element thing at the top left or their water element thing at the top right those kind of things in order to kind of align with that layout um, you'll also see when people are drawing pentagrams in the air if they are like doing some kind of ceremonial ritual magic for example they might start at a specific corner because they're trying to influence that one particular element and they might go a specific direction based on which corner they started in in order to either invoke or banish or those kinds of things. So you might see someone draw a star and they start at the top left. You might see somebody draw a star and they start at the top right. Those would be different elements that they're interacting with. So understanding the pentagram is an, a symbol of elements and what those elements stand for uh, can give a little bit of insight into quite a bit of things. Another example of a physical written symbol that represents the elements or what's called the elemental or the alchemical triangles. And the alchemical triangles are basically you have a triangle that's pointed upwards or a triangle that's pointed downwards, a triangle that's pointed upwards and has a line struck through it, and a triangle that's pointed downwards and has a line struck through it. And uh, there's meaning to all of that. These symbols were used in people's alchemical books as they were describing different processes and describing different spiritual processes and chemical processes that they believed were happening. And so as they were documenting their work, they would write down these symbols, sometimes to keep people who were not alchemists out of their work, sometimes as an attempt to um, protect themselves, because there's, you know, some legal ramifications of witchcraft in that time period in Europe, um, those kinds of things. So in the case of the alchemical triangles, the 
triangle that's pointed upwards and has no lines in it is fire. And the opposite of fire is probably pretty easily distinguishable. If you were to guess fire, earth, air, and water, which one's the opposite of, of fire? Probably water, right? Water puts out fire, fire turns it into steam, and makes it go away, so they're kind of opposites, right? Um, so the upward triangle is fire, the downward triangle is water, and then earth and air are also kind of considered to be opposites in that way. The upward triangle that has a line stricken through it, it's a horizontal line, and this is very important. It's a horizontal line that cuts the top of the pyramid off of the bottom of the pyramid, or the top of the triangle off the bottom of the triangle, if that makes sense. It does not divide it down the middle. It is a triangle with like a littler triangle on the top because of a line that we've drawn across. Um, that's the symbol of air. And if you think about it, the fire and air are the male uh, energy concepts in the elements. They're considered to be the masculine. That is not to say that anyone, regardless of gender or gender identity or anything like that, can't work with all of the energies. We just we subdivide out the elements into like a male meaning penetrative going forth, you know, to be. Um, whereas the female energies are like receptive, they're like they go the other direction. So. Um, Another way to think of that is active versus passive. And I think that's the words that really gets used a lot when it comes to um, like Crowley's work when he's writing uh, Liber O and he talks about the lesser ritual of the pentagram. He talks about the individual pentagrams when he's talking about spirit being in its two forms, which a lot of people would say masculine or feminine. In his case, he, he calls them passive or active. And that's a pretty good way to think about it. Air and fire are the active sides of the elements. You know, think about what fire looks like. Think about what fire is like, right? Uh, whereas, like, earth and water are more receptive energies. And so that's that's what we mean when we split them into. You'll hear people call them male or female or active and passive. That's what they're talking about. So if you take fire and air, they're both triangles that point up. One of them is a triangle that points up with no line in it. One of them is a triangle that points up with a line in it. But they're both the male energy ones, they both point up, um, which is more phallic, right? <laughs> uh, whereas the receptive energies, earth and water, are both triangles that point down, which is more like a vessel, like a cup, or like a bowl, or, you know, those kinds of things, right? And that's, those triangles are selected on purpose. And then the line through it is uh, where you have like, um, I wish I could remember what the other word is, mutable and I don't know. There's there, there's this this concept of like one being more uh, like physically represented, more like stationary, and the other being much more abstract, much more like um, high excitement, much more. Uh, able to be changed from one form to another. Right? So like the difference between earth and water is a little more obvious. Earth, physical object, it's a rock. Water, you could probably put that glass of water in any vessel that holds water. you know, And it'll change its shape in order to get into the cup of the, sh the, the shape of the cup and the shape of the bowl and the shape of the glass. And it, it's much more uh, mutable. It's much more able to be changed its shape. Right? 
Um, similar concepts between air and fire. Air, uh, fire is like lapping around, and it's hard to like if you like run your hand through it, it'll like you know run around your hand, and you it uh, you can't really contain it. Whereas air, you can blow up a balloon with air. You know, you can like it's a little bit more containable in one specific place. And so the line across is representative of that. So the earth element is pointed as a triangle that's pointed down and it has a line across it. And the air element is a triangle that's pointed up and has a line across it. And those are the, the of the two, because it's split in the masculine and feminine, of the two, it is the more um, physically represented, the less mutable, right? Um, what else do I want to say about the alchemical triangles? Um, I feel like we've I feel like we've painted the, the picture of what the idea is there. Uh, there's also the alchemical hexagrams. These are symbols that you will see from time to time. It is a much less used system. Generally speaking, when somebody on a piece of paper writes down a symbol for for fire, they are going to write an upward facing triangle. Generally, um, you'll sometimes see this where they'll draw out the pentagram. And then at each corner, they'll draw a symbol for whatever that corner is. So they'll draw a pentagram, and then at one corner, they'll put an upward-facing triangle with a line in it, and you get the idea. Uh, very rarely do I see anybody throw the hexagrams on those corners. Now, when you're doing certain types of ceremonial ritual, you will, in fact, use the hexagrams instead. That's just part of the way that it plays out. Um, an example of that would be the lesser ritual of the hexagram, where... Lesser ritual of the pentagram, you're drawing specific pentagrams at each quarter. Lesser ritual of the hexagram, you're using specific hexagrams. Now, when they say the hexagrams, they do not necessarily mean that it is a literal hexagram, that it is a six-sided object, right? Generally, the way that they're drawn is some combination of two triangles. And an example of this would be what you would consider to be the Jewish star. That's one of the hexagrams. That's the hexagram of Earth. And why they call it the hexagrams. It's like the starting point. The hexagram of the Jewish star being an upward-facing triangle and a lower-facing triangle drawn on top of each other to create a six-pointed star. That's the hexagram of Earth. The hexagram of fire is where you take two, um, you take two triangles and you put one on the other one almost like it's wearing a hat. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe this. It's really difficult to describe symbols over uh, voice on the internet. I'll include pictures in the uh, show notes. So if you would like to see what I'm talking about and you're not understanding how I'm describing it, because I know some people are more visual learners and some people are more audio learners. Um, if you're having trouble with it, I'll put a picture of it in the show notes at whitewoodpodcast.com. You can find the specific episode that deals with the elements and in the show notes, I'll throw a picture. So, a triangle that has another triangle on top of it and is basically just overlapping on that little top point. They're both upward-facing triangles. And if you kind of think about it, number one, it does make a little bit of a symbol for fire because you have, like, triangles that are lapping up into more triangles, right? Number two, uh, it represents the type of energy that we're talking about because you have one triangle consuming the other triangle. Right, And that's going to be really key to understand the way that the hexagrams are drawn. We talked about fire being that which consumes, earth being that which provides. So those are like crystallizing together, right? So like earth element is that which is like 
you know, providing, but also that which is like crystallizing into physical reality. And so they're on top of each other because they're like in perfect balance with each other, the up and the down. In fire, there's an up and an up. One is consuming the other one. In air element, you have two of them and they're pointing opposite directions. So uh, they're pointing away from each other. So you have a triangle on top that's pointing up and a triangle on bottom that's pointing down. And the reason for that is if you were to follow the motion from both of those things, you would divide a thing, right? So air being that which divides things into multiple categories, it is taking the two triangles and dividing them away from each other. So do you want to guess what the water element one is? I'll give you a clue. It's that which joins together and it's often considered to be the opposite of air. Exactly. You're taking two triangles, pointing them towards each other so that they're joining together. So basically you would have a downward triangle on top of an upward triangle, whereas air would be an upward triangle on top of a downward triangle. So opposite symbols there. So those are the hexagrams. So you're going to see those. You're going to see you're going to see the, the alchemical triangles. That's the one that everyone uses. Anytime you're trying to describe just a single symbol or you're trying to like draw it into a spell working or you're trying to do whatever, the, al the alchemical triangles is the one you're probably going to end up finding yourself using. The pentagram is just the general symbol for all of the elements. And the hexagrams are generally used when you're dealing with macrocosmic energies. But you want to balance out the elements in order to interact with those macrocosmic energies. So for example, lesser hexagram of the, or lesser ritual of the hexagram or greater ritual of the hexagram deals with the hexagrams instead because they are uh, dealing with slightly different energies. Um, there are also physical symbols that are drawn for the tattvas. Uh, the first one's hilarious because it's the same. <laughs> uh, the, the, the red triangle, it, they have, the tattvas have colors associated with, with the symbols. And um, there's two different words that often describe the fire. There's Agni or Tejas. I see both of them used uh, to be the fire element in the tattvas. They're describing one single tattva and not two separate tattvas. Um, there is another one that has two names, and I didn't write it down. Um, so the fire element is a red triangle that points up. So it's not that you take a red marker and you draw a triangle. It's that it is a red triangle. It has a red border and is filled in with red, if that makes sense. Separation there. Uh, the tattva symbols would be used like in the case of like, if you're doing like a, an elemental meditation, you would stare at, this is popularized by the Golden Dawn, by the way. They're the organization that did this the most. Uh, you'd stare at a red triangle in order to invoke fire element into your meditation. Um, the water, apas, is a gray crescent like a crescent moon almost but it's facing almost like it's a bowl or a cup so if you had like a crescent moon it would start at a point and it would you know be like a big c right like the letter c if if you're doing the the opus the tatva of water it's like a big u if that makes sense it's like a bowl it's holding um, water, right? Uh, air, this, the tattva for air, vayu, is a big blue circle. And earth, prithvi, is a yellow square. And then the tattvas do include a fifth, and it is spirit, aether, um, you know, those kinds of things. 
Uh, and the tatva is it's a black egg. It's an upside down egg. <laughs> it's uh, it is shaped exactly like an egg. Um, but I don't I don't know what the significance is there. I'm sure there there is some. Very rarely do I find in these types of things that something is done for no reason. I believe that there's probably a reason that egg is upside down. It might just be that Westerners, you know, I'm a Westerner. Maybe I just view eggs being right set up when they're upside down to them. I don't know. It's not like it comes out of the chicken a specific way and lays on the ground with the thin part pointing up. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe that's it. Or maybe there's some other deeper occult meaning that I have not become privy to yet. Or maybe, oh, I like this one. Maybe I'm not allowed to tell you. Maybe I'm privy to a secret that I've taken oaths against. I didn't, but man, they would be pretty funny, huh? <laughs> um, let's see. So that's the tatvas, the red triangle, the crescent, the gray crescent, the blue circle, the yellow square, and the black egg are the symbols for the tatvas. Um, and they align with the elements. Uh, another example of symbols that might be used in a working, this is where it gets so stupidly complicated and honestly a little uncomfortable, is the Enochian tables that John Dee and Sir Edward Kelly made. Um, so Elizabeth I had a spiritual advisor named John Dee or Johannes Dee. Um, he was an alchemist and spiritual advisor to the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, in the 1500s. And I believe he died in the very, very early 1600s. But during the 1500s, while he was doing his advising and his alchemical... Uh, John Dee is a very interesting character because at the time period, he was probably one of the highest educated individuals in the, in the entire country. Because um, he, was, he was right there in the center of the courts. His job was to be the highly educated one on both spiritual and scientific matters. In his time period, there wasn't a lot of separation between spiritual and scientific. It was very much just kind of, you know, one category. And he had access to the royal library. He had access to all of the means that he would possibly need in order to investigate or learn or track down information. During his time period, he was probably... If, if he was not the most educated person in England, he was in the top five. He was a very interesting individual. Um, during some of his experimentation, um, he started to work with a system that he titled Enochian. Enochian referencing Enoch, the biblical character. Um, he was specifically attempting to summon, contact, and converse with angels. And... The system that he invented and or received, depending on your personal interpretation of his work, is frequently referenced as to as the Enochian system, uh, in that he wrote what are called the Enochian tablets, which are tablets of letters and a couple of symbols. It's mostly letters of the alphabet uh, that are drawn in a grid that are elemental in nature. So basically you have like a giant grid and it's got what looks like a whole bunch of jumbly juke uh, just, you know, drawn all the way across it. A, F, B, Q, you know, uppercase, lowercase. And um, if you understood the layout of it, it starts to have some meaning. The meaning is basically that there are these 48 calls and keys in order to uh, pronounce them, in order to establish communication with 
angelic forces. That was John's opinion in his work. Um, John D. and Sir Edward Kelly were um, working together with the Enochian system. Basically, if I remember correctly, Kelly was the psychic and John was the advisor in that situation. And they were using John D.'s system in order to contact and converse with forces outside of their own understanding. Um, there's a book called the Liber Logaeth. Log- Log- contains the 48 calls and keys. And the Enochian tablets are basically grids of letters and numbers that when, when you need to, I don't know, summon some specific angel of fire or some specific angel of water, you would find a specific part of the grid and read, read either left to right, right to left, up to down, those kinds of things. And one of the reasons why I bring this up is because it was very, very influential, that his work was very influential into groups who were influential later. So while John Dee's work is generally not used, it's not it's not used. I know people that fuck with it. Um, it's not a common topic of conversation. You know, you're not going to like just walk up to a random pagan festival and be like, yeah, what do you think about John Dee and Edward Kelly's work? Probably not. Uh, I mean, there will be individuals who know what you're talking about for sure, but uh, probably not like a, a normal topic of conversation if you're just talking about the elements. However, uh, th- those same people are probably going to be very, very educated on what the Golden Dawn was, being this organization in 1888 until 1903 that... Um, uh, practiced Western magic and acted as probably one of the most historically influential groups in the occult to have ever existed. They influenced a whole bunch of other people's works, both directly and indirectly. Uh, a lot of people pull inspiration from them. And they personally were inspired by John Dee's Enochian. And so, for example, one of the groups that broke off from the Golden Dawn, the Stella Metatina, which is the group that uh, Israel Rigardi was a member of, uh, they were utilizing Enochian heavily in just their regular everyday rituals where they would take specific calls and words in order to make you know words of power. So they'd go to the chart, they'd find specific quadrants in the chart, and they'd use those words of power in order to invoke specific elemental energy. So they'd say things like, in order to you know invoke a specific elemental energy energy while doing ritual, right? Um, Much of that work is interesting because John Dee's system isn't just the four elements. It is the four elements of the four elements. And that's why I bring it up because I think it's a very interesting thing to point out. So his chart was the four quadrants and then each one of those four quadrants was divided up into four quadrants. And this is something that we use in um, Kabbalistic magic, where it's not necessarily just earth, air, and fire, and water. It's also earth of earth, being like the true pure earth energy, or earth of fire, being the earth aspect that exists in a fiery thing. So there might be subcategorizations where you might take like something that is mostly a fire energy, but you're also trying to deal with something a little bit more specific than just invoking any kind of fire energy into your situation. Maybe you're trying to focus on the money and pragmatic aspect of this fiery thing, and that's when you might invoke 
the earth of fire. If that makes sense. If you're dealing with the pure element, you would say fire of fire, air of air, water of water, earth of earth. But if you're dealing with the air of water or the earth of fire or the water of, you see what I'm saying? You can kind of make, you can subdivide already subdivided things further. And sure, you could probably go farther than that and continue to subdivide. But the Enochian system offers an opportunity to subdivide into in that way. And at one point, um, I played around with that a little bit in order to um, kind of see how I felt about uh, using that symbol a little bit more in depth. The, tab the tablets themselves can be used uh, for various Enochian workings or Stella Mastina versions of the lesser, pen uh, lesser ritual of pentagram, those kind of things. But I also started playing around with it a little bit with like the layout of my altar to not just have um, a representation of fire, a representation of water, a representation of earth, a representation of air, but to take that a step farther and talk about like air of fire. So having four representations of fire on the altar. And the, the reason why I stopped was not that it was ineffective. Uh, the reason why I stopped was because it was a highly effective system for altar layout, but it cluttered my altar really bad because there was, you know, 16 symbols of elements instead of four. And it, it was just a lot to have on a table. That, that's the main reason why I stopped. Um, maybe you, maybe it's your will to experiment with that a little bit. Totally, totally cool if you do. Um, so that's kind of how John Dee's and Edward Kelly's work plays into this whole bigger spectrum of things. But all right, so we've we've talked about a lot. I want to kind of wrap this up and kind of, oh, you know what? I need to take a second and talk about, hmm. Okay, we're going to go, we're going to backtrack really quick and then we're going to wrap it up. <laughs> um, when we were talking about earth, air, fire, and water, we didn't mention the seasons. And there's a reason why I didn't put it into my general description of stuff. And I think it's really important that we do talk about it. So when we're talking about fire, earth, air, and water, the, the seasons play into that a little bit but there are multiple interpretations of those seasons. If you come from a tradition that has pulled the Aristotle's version of the elements, where, they, where something is wet and dry and hot and cold, right? A combination of those forces, then people generally associate the spring with air, the summer with fire, the autumn with earth, and the winter with water. And the reason for that is because spring is a wet season that is in the process of becoming hot. Summer is a hot season, which is dry. Autumn is a drier season that is on the process of becoming cold. And winter is a cold season, which is having a shit ton of snow deposited on it. It is becoming wet. Um, if you come from an Aristotle thought tradition, you'll find those are the elemental associations. However, not everybody does. Not everyone agrees about these ones, and that's okay. Because when we're talking about the elements, we're not necessarily saying that these associations are perfect at all times. We're talking about much more abstract energies, and it's okay for people's personal interpretations to influence how they do work. Remember, magic is subjective, and so it's okay to disagree. Um, the other method that I often see is... Um, 
I have seen spring be water because it's naturally associated with being a wet season and summer shower or spring showers and those kinds of things. Summer's almost always fire because it's hot and uncomfortable. And autumn, I have seen be represented as earth. Um, I have that being like the, the harvest, you know, uh, winter being air because the most prominent thing that exists out in the winter is the cold air cutting into your skin kind of a concept. Um, I've also seen winter be regarded as earth element because everything has died and now only the husks of the trees and it's, you know, just the, the snowy landscape and uh, everything kind of like dies and goes back to that crystallized form. So I've seen it represented that way. Um, I've seen autumn be represented as either earth or air because you see the air a lot more in autumn because there's leaves floating through the air and it's much easier to distinguish a gust of wind when there's you know 30 orange and yellow bright objects floating around in it and so i've seen that be a representation that kind of goes around a little bit obviously spring being either air or water those kind of things so it's going to depend on your personal interpretation and wherever you're learning i would not listen to this episode and here, the first thing that I said was spring, air, summer, fire, autumn, earth, winter, water, and then go, my teacher is wrong because Nate Driscoll said otherwise. Um, I wouldn't approach it like that. I would approach it as this is another way to interpret it. The important thing is to be able to apply the elemental systems to things. Right? It is subjective. Well, the important thing is that it puts you in the driver's seat of your life. That's where it should matter. Um, okay. Now that I made that point, now we can kind of wrap up. What do you do with this information, right? You have some symbols that you can physically draw onto stuff or color in the case of the tatvas. Uh, you have Enochian tablets that you could potentially use for calls and organizing words. And you have a general abstract concept of what fire is, what earth is, what air is, what water is. You know, you have... You've got some uh, historical inspiration. You understand now that it's not just the Wiccans, it's not just the magical traditions that practice these things, but it is Christian alchemy, it is uh, Buddhism, it is Judaism, it is you know Aristotle's philosophical work in ancient Greece, it is Tibet, it is India, it is all of these different cultures are using very, very similar. So you understand historically, you have kind of a layout of kind of what to do here what do you do with all this right it's all fun and games to talk about stuff but what's the point if we're just going to talk about it i am a strong advocate of getting the hell off of what we call the uh, armchair wizard diet the armchair wizard is basically an individual who knows a whole bunch because they read and they read and they read oh sorry i needed water um they, they, uh, they need to understand. Oh, that's so funny. I was talking about needing to understand being when I needed water to balance it out. That's fucking hilarious. That was subconscious, not on purpose, just so we're all clear. <laughs> um, so Armchair Wizard is basically somebody that reads a whole bunch of occult topics and then never does anything. So they're fantastic at you know having an intellectual discussion about something, but they've never done the magic themselves. I don't want to encourage armchair wizards in the world. 
I want less people saying, um, actually, and more people saying, hey, that's an interesting perspective. But when I was doing it last Wednesday, this happened. And I, th I thought that was interesting and of import. I would much rather have those conversations with people. So I'm trying to create that in the world. So what do I do with the elemental stuff? Well, first off, symbol seeking is a powerful thing to do with any symbol. Symbol seeking is where you open your front door and you just go find the symbol somewhere represented out in the world. So let's say I'm trying to invite something into my life. I want to have more, I don't know, whatever in my life. I can go symbol seeking. I open the front door, go outside, try to find something. Uh, generally what you would do is you would just randomly wander and not like go to something that you know there will be a symbol of that one energy out there. So you do, let's use an example of I need more earth, I guess. Yeah. I need more earth energy in my life. I find that I'm misbalanced. I'm not doing it right. I need more earth energy. I need to be more practical. I need a little bit of abundance in my life. I need, you know, generosity and, you know, whatever the fuck. Whatever the fuck the energy thing is that you're looking for. Go find it. Open the front door. Start walking down the street. And just wander around town until you find some symbol of earth. Now... There might be a system where you decide that you're going to take that thing home with you. Maybe it's like you went to the park and you found a rock. That, that's okay. Uh, maybe it's inappropriate for you to take that with you. you. You don't have to. You just have to go observe that thing. Go find it in the world and observe it. That might be an example of symbol seeking. And then go home and consider that a working. It is something that works pretty well. Um, you can also do kind of the category game as you're kind of going around in order to build up a relationship with these energies and to better understand them, walk around as you're going around town, going around the internet, going around whatever, stop for a second and go, what element is that? What? Whatever the fuck I'm looking at right now. You just kind of have a conversation with yourself. That thing that is over there, what element would you say that is? Hmm. Well, I would probably put that as an air element thing, I think. That makes sense, and here's why. Cool. Go about your day. Uh, that constant interacting with the concept that is that energy will build up your understanding of it. You'll start to be able to add more things to the category. The more things that you add to the category, the more power that thing has in your life, the more that you can actually utilize it. So, symbol seeking and the categorization game. Very important. Something that I really like that is very much on the mundane side of things is problem solving. I like to use elemental problem solving. So if I have a problem and it is a fire-oriented problem, I might find myself using fire uh, problem-solving skills with that thing. For example, Jesus, I know that I have been sitting on this couch for a fucking month. It's very draining to me. I'm not doing anything. But I know that fire element is instinctual and it starts things and it could get me going because it's high energy and cardio and those kind of things. So I know that I need more fire energy to balance out this imbalance that exists in my space. So I could do fire element things in order to get rid of this imbalance of fire element in my life. So you could go do some cardio you know, if you got a treadmill, if you just need to run around the block a little bit, you know, go do some cardio and see if when you're done doing cardio, if you have more energy than you had when you were stuck to the couch. Because I would argue that you probably do. You've invited more of that fire energy into your life. You're more excited. There's more going on. Awesome. Right? And now suddenly you've 
you know, created a little bit more fire in your life. Same thing with like, you know, I don't know. Um, let's say you're writing poetry or making art and it's just getting kind of like dry. <laughs> we call it dry. Oh man. There's so many linguistic things that fall into this. And it's hilarious. Um, that your art's just becoming dry and you're like, man, I don't know what it is. I, I, I'm drawing the same way that I always draw. I don't stop. It's a, it's a water problem. Apply some water to it. Okay. I need to go do some emotional things. I need to go, um, think and feel about my emotions. I need to apply some of that to this solution. And now you'll find that your art has opened up with that creativity because you've, uh, you know, done something water element oriented, like spending time with your family or going doing something that's emotionally difficult for you or talking with a friend about trauma or, uh, you know, just anything, anything that is emotional in nature could be a, a great thing. The other way that elemental problem solving works is if you're hitting a wall and nothing's happening and you're stuck on a problem, you can do the opposite. So for example, Sure, it makes sense that when I don't have enough water, I add water. But if I have too much water, it helps to add the opposite. So like, fuck, my life is just, I'm an emotional wreck right now. I am so stressed out. I Someone said something to me. It's just making me really, I'm, I'm struggling with this emotion. You know, I feel rejected. I feel upset. I feel, and then I recognize, hey, I'm saying I feel, I feel. I feel. I'm not saying I think. I think. I think. I'm not saying I have. I have. I have. And I'm not saying I do. I'm saying I feel. So why don't I take a second and apply the opposite? If I'm feeling overwhelmed because I have too much feeling, why don't I think scientifically, mathematically, pragmatically about the solution? Why don't I apply the opposite element in order to neutralize my abundance of this one element? That would make sense. So now this overwhelming emotional experience, I can apply my scientific brain thinking towards it and say, you know what? It's not as big of a deal as I'm making it. I'm, you know, I'm steering way too hard into the emotional side of things, but the reality is the solution is pretty simple. Uh, I can do this step and then this step and then this step and I can, you know, categories out, you know, what is the problem really? Is it, is it a whole conjoined problem where like, it's an unsurmountable, massive pile of problem. Or can I apply intellectual thinking and say, no, it's not. It's 500 little problems, and each one of these little problems are manageable. So I can divide up that problem into smaller bits. And I can say, hey, uh, this, this one thing, I can do that. Part of the reason I'm anxious is because my room is fucking messy. I can just pick up that fucking, you know, that shirt that's on the ground. That's one thing down. Now the room's not as messy. Oh, look at that. Oh, I can pick up this other thing. Dividing it into smaller bits, managing it. So problem solving elementally can be uh, very non-religious, but very profound in your life. You can find yourself either empowering a situation with more of something that you're lacking or the opposite, negating it with something that's the opposite of it. And you can do this symbolically as well, where... If I'm feeling really low energy, I can meditate on the color red or the color yellow and get some movement going, right? If I'm feeling like uh, I'm just overheated and angry and, you know, like it's just that's getting to me, I can cool out by, you know, thinking about that water energy. 
color blue and those kind of things. So you can you can apply this to a lot of things. It could be color therapy. It could be um, just actual problem solving. How do you approach a problem? And uh, it, it helps to have that in your tool bag as you go through life. Obviously, you know, since we're talking about uh, those kind of things, I think that meditations and rituals are probably pretty important to bring up here. So you can meditate on one of these symbols. And when you meditate on one of the symbols, all the things that you have put into that category start to become one single energy thing that you're interacting with. And so uh, so let's say I'm doing an energy meditation of fire. I would meditate on the symbol of fire, the colors of fire, you know, something, some visual object to hold in the mind as my point of focus. And after meditating and holding the image of a burning thing in my mind for, I don't know, and feeling that heat and hearing the sound of that crackle and just holding that image in my mind for 15, 20 minutes, whatever your meditation time is, instead of a mantra, uh, you'll find that there are some effects to that, that you might have invited some fire energy into your life or created fire energy in your life, depending on what your view on it is. And then, of course, rituals work in a very similar fashion where you um, might do like an invocation or a banishing of fire element in order to influence how much fire element you have in your life, right? So that's kind of the magical thinking side of it. Uh, You might invoke it important moments before you need it. So like, for example, uh, it would make sense to not be super air element on your wedding day. (laughs) Um, Like, for example, don't you want to feel that love and compassion and community that exists when you see your bride or your husband or, you know, you see that individual that you're marrying, you know, walk out or you walk to them, you know, whatever the situation, wherever you are in the the marriage. Don't you want to feel that moment? as your family and all your loved ones there to support you and the communities there, you know, or do you want to like subdivide out and think to yourself like Jerry is here because yesterday I invited him and he goes to work with me and my mother is here because, you know, I, I don't know. I think there are certain experiences that are more water element, certain experiences are more fire element and such and such. And you might uh, find that you want to invoke a specific energy ritually before you go into them so that you're most aligned with whatever that experience is going to be. So if I was going to go into court, I would probably want to be much more earth element and much less water element because I don't want to start sobbing in a courtroom or start yelling in a courtroom and make, you know, my actions affect the play out. But if I were to shift my energies in a way, where I am more practical and grounded uh, and thinking down that road, it would make sense that I would have positive effects from my actions in that place. Um, You can kind of see how rituals and incantations at important moments can be a benefit. And then finally, the last thing that I think uh, works really well, I've already brought up once, which is the altar to have um, a representation of the universe as you understand it in a 
sacred space that you have designated within your home or within maybe you can't have it full time maybe you have to have it just part of the time and uh, you can lay those out in an elemental fashion in fact that is generally the norm uh, when doing magic to have some elemental representations like a candle for fire or maybe an oil burner for fire and maybe a cup of water or a bowl of water for water and uh, maybe incense or a feather for air or um, earth could be like a stone or a pentacle or those kinds of things. There's coins, there's different types of symbols that kind of tie all that together. And so, um, yeah, that is hopefully, I mean, I don't, I don't think that we can sum up something like the elements in an episode, but hopefully that is at least a long enough list that everyone's tired of listening to me rant about them <laughs> and not feeling like, oh, Nate, why did you leave out all of this interesting information that I wish that you would have talked about? Because I want to hear you talk about it. But hey, if you do want to hear more about these kinds of things, let me know. Let me know what you liked about the episode, what you wish I would have delved more in depth into. Um, and I'm always happy to, you know, kind of find that middle ground between what I enjoy creating and what people enjoy listening to. So let me know. You can reach me at nate at whitewoodpodcast.com. And I do answer my emails. <laughs> and uh, yeah, please reach out. Let me know what you think. And uh, think about how, if nothing else, you can now understand when somebody says, I've had a really fiery day, you know, what you could understand about that. If nothing else, you now understand a little bit more about the symbols that exist in religion and in specific the occult and how that might influence someone's decision making. But hopefully it's more than that. Hopefully you can take some balance in your life and utilize these symbols in order to find it. Good luck. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.